are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Daniel Kovalik, the author of the book, Plot to Control the World, how the U.S. spent billions to change the outcome of elections around the world. By the way, our show would not be able to succeed without patrons. And today, I'd like to thank Philip Albin and Ramesh Mantri for being our patrons. So I'm Isha, and right now we have Brandon, who's also a co-host online, and our producer, Robert, online, but he's just like listening and monitoring. (laughs) Okay, hello, everyone. Hi, how are you doing? Very good, thanks. So to start off the interview, can you tell us more about yourself? You're a professor in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, I teach international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And I've been an attorney for over 25 years, specializing in labor law and human rights law as well. Do you want to talk about some of the more interesting people you've sued under the Alien Torts Act? Yes, uh, I've worked on cases against the Coca-Cola Company, Drum and Coal Company, Occidental Petroleum, and all related to human rights abuses in Colombia. Okay, can you talk about what Coca-Cola did in Colombia? Yeah, well, it's several different bombing plants in Colombia. They worked with paramilitary groups to intimidate unionists, to have some arrested, and even at least in one case to have one killed, a guy named Isidro Hill, in a bottling plant in Cucuta, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. You probably hear Cucuta in the, in the news a lot because it's on the border with Venezuela, so... That's the nearest town where these aid shipments were supposed to go through. Quote, unquote, aid. (laughs) So thank you for coming on. And I was really in awe with your interview with, was it Telesur or Real News Network? I can't remember where it was. might have been Telesur. Probably Telesur. Okay. So let's start from what's going on right now in Colombia and Venezuela and all that mess. Well, let's start with Colombia. And I've been doing some writing on this, so it's pretty fresh in my mind, too. So Mm -hmm. Colombia has had a real spike in paramilitary violence since the peace accords between the government and the FARC were signed in 2016. Quite interestingly, because, well, essentially the FARC represented a certain resistance to that violence. And now that they're out of the way and disarmed, the paramilitaries are running wild in Colombia. And so, for example, a group called Frontline Defenders, which does an annual report on human rights defenders, violence against human rights defenders around the world, they reported last year in 2018 that there were 321 human rights defenders killed around the world. Of those, 123 were in Colombia. Wow. So over a third of all human rights defenders in the world were killed in Colombia. And there's not a country that's close to that figure. It's amazing. And these are mostly being killed by paramilitaries who work with the military that the U.S. funds. And they do so largely on behalf of transnational mining companies to take over land. 
and they've been quite successful at this. And so, again, something that gets no reportage in the U.S. press is that Colombia has the largest internally displaced population in the world at almost 8 million people. And where are they displaced from? And are they indigenous people or...? Well, they are disproportionately Afro-Colombians and, um, mm -hmm. and indigenous peoples. And they're being displaced largely from the Pacific coast. That's the biggest region they're being displaced from, but also by in other areas, for example, in La Guajira, which actually borders Venezuela. And these are the richer areas in terms of minerals and agricultural land. And again, over out of the eight, eight, almost 8 million, at least 2 million are Afro-Colombians. And then a large number of indigenous as well, because they happen to be on the land that the companies covet. And what is it that they're mining for? A number of things. Gold is one. They have huge gold reserves. And gold is at a very high price right now at about I believe it's like $1,300 an ounce. And you compare that to where it was, say, you know, 10, 15 years ago, is it like $300 an ounce? So there's been this gold rush. <laughs> and so that's a big product that companies go for. But there's also oil there. There's coal. It's a very resource-rich country. And there's also very rich agricultural land. And so banana companies like Chiquita are there. They've used the paramilitaries. They've admitted to this. They were criminally prosecuted for paying the paramilitaries $1.7 million and giving them 3,000 Kalashnikov weapons. What year? Like, I know that the one of the, the way we, the term Banana Republic came out of like the 1928. Right. That was United Fruit Company, which is now Chiquita, mm -hmm. which in Cienaga used the military to kill hundreds or thousands of striking banana workers. And that's detailed in the fictional account by Gabriel Garcia Marquez in 100 Years of Solitude. But what I was mentioning happened recently or more recently under the Bush administration, actually straddling the Clinton and Bush administrations between 1998 and 2004. How did it start in 1998? Well, and actually it was 1997. I, I correct myself. Well, I mean, how do these things ever happen? I mean, Chiquita at the highest levels of the board at that time based in Cincinnati, Ohio, arranged to make these payments to the paramilitaries. They claimed and continue to claim it was for security, meaning like that the paramilitaries essentially were saying, oh, if you don't give us this money, we're going to you know, kill your people or whatnot. But no one really believes that. Uh, even Uribe, you know, Alvaro Uribe, the right wing president, mm -hmm. his own attorney general concluded that, in fact, and his name was Mario Iguaran, was the attorney general who I met before, he concluded Chiquita was making the payments so the paramilitaries would go out and subdue the land for them so that they could plant bananas there. And, and subduing the land meant not only displacing people, but murdering people. And Iguaran concluded that as a result of this collaboration with the paramilitaries, at least 4,000 people were killed and that this also allowed the paramilitaries to establish themselves uh, as a national phenomenon. I mean, they really allowed them to gain control over Colombia, control that still exists to this day. So this help from Chiquita and other companies like it, one, a key paramilitary leader, a guy named Salvatore Mancuso, said Del Monte and Dole also paid money to them. 
And these payments really have devastated Colombia because really now this evil paramilitarism has taken hold in ways that seem permanent. And interestingly, so Chiquita was prosecuted for this because a board member who was late to the party found out about it. And he went to the Bush Justice Department and said, well, I found out we've been paying Chiquita all these years. And I'm telling you because I don't want to get in trouble for it. And so eventually the Bush Justice Department did indict them for this. And but incredibly, they were fined only twenty five million dollars that they were allowed to pay over five years. And none of their people went to jail. And they pled guilty, right? They pled guilty. Wow. And interestingly enough, so twenty five million dollars for killing thousands of people. Right. And. Interestingly, their defense lawyer who helped negotiate the deal would become attorney general for Barack Obama, and his name was Eric Holder. Oh, my. I did not know about this. So Eric Holder negotiated the deal on behalf of Chiquita while he was working in in private law? Yes, he was in private law at that time. He was in between public jobs. He was assistant attorney general for... Clinton. He left, went back to private practice. During that time, he negotiated the deal for Chiquita. I guess he did other things too. I don't know what those things were. And then he was made attorney general under Obama. And under Obama, how was Chiquita and their relationship with the paramilitary group? Like, how how was it treated? Well, again, under Obama, so he is elected in 2008. So by then, pretty much all this had been settled, They, you know, with the guilty plea and all. And there was evidence that they continued to pay the paramilitaries even after that time through a subsidiary. And there were a couple good stories about that, I think, in the magazine in these times. But that wasn't well known. And basically, the U.S. government treated it as if it was a thing of the past. And so... You know, that was that. So, And right now, the Colombian government has brought or bringing a case against the Chiquita 13? Right. So as I said, none of the individual board members were ever prosecuted themselves for these crimes. And so now Colombia is at least making moves to go after them for these same crimes. We'll see how that progresses. I mean, Colombia often starts these cases... And frankly, little comes out of them. Colombia is a country marked by incredible impunity for these types of crimes and for really a lack of rule of law there. So we'll have to see what happens. But that's true. They are looking into that. Wow. I wish I could say I'm shocked, but knowing the U.S. history, I'm not. (laughs) So the next question is, who started these right-wing death squads or when did they begin? Well... They have a very long history, dating back to 1962. John F. Kennedy started something called the National Security Doctrine, Mm -hmm. which, of course, had nothing to do with national security as these things tend to be. And it was a doctrine of counterinsurgency in Latin America. And he sent a general, General William Yarborough, to Colombia. It was the first country where the National Security Doctrine was put into force. And it was Yarborough that came up with the idea of the paramilitaries as a force who could combat 
in his words, communists in ways that would be, you know, too unseemly for the U.S. and Colombian militaries to do themselves. Now, of course, when he said communists, he meant trade union leaders, indigenous leaders, peasant leaders, and Catholic priests as well. In Colombia, too? Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, actually, Colombia, listen to this. This is amazing. And this is according to the Catholic Bishops' Conference of Colombia. Since 1984, over 80 Catholic priests have been murdered, one bishop and one archbishop, 80 priests. And according to the Catholic Bishops' Conference of Colombia, they were killed because of their advocacy for the poor, which, of course, is exactly the type of people the national security doctrine was aimed at because the national security doctrine also began very quickly to target liberation theology, which began to emerge after the Second Vatican Council, which also was in 1962. You know, that program of destroying liberation theology was rather successful. I mean, you know, they killed hundreds of priests throughout the region And the military coup in Brazil in 1964, one of the reasons the U.S. backed it was to destroy liberation theology at its source, which was in Brazil. Brazil was the font uh, of liberation theology. Archbishop Camara comes out of there. He was one of the founding fathers of liberation theology. So in any case... Colombia really is the original testing ground for all this. And so it's interesting, like people say, oh, you know, like in Iraq, they use the Salvador option of using death squads. I mean, really, Salvador got it from Colombia and Vietnam got it from Colombia. All this really started there and has never stopped. That's the other thing. You know, people will say, oh, like the death squads in the 80s. Well, they continued in Colombia <laughs> since that time, but they're unnamed and they're not spoken of. They're kind of like Baltimore. You don't talk about them or, you know, and there's a reason for that. I mean, the way that they're successful is that the U.S. and Colombian governments and largely the U.S. press won't concede that they even exist. You know, there's that line that the devil's greatest feat was to convince the world he doesn't exist, right? And that's true of the paramilitaries. And so you have these paramilitaries committing these incredible atrocities in Colombia to this day. In fact, in a place called Buenaventura, where I visited, which is a mostly Afro-Colombian port town, they operate these chop houses where they chop people up a lot with machetes Eesh. and chainsaws. And again, I'm not making this oh, up. You, yeah, can, right. you, you can find a Human Rights Watch reports on this. I mean, this is known that this goes on. Bodies would show up in the river. And no one cares. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, if you look at the numbers in Colombia, they are number one in some of the worst things in the world in terms of, as I mentioned, number one in internally displaced peoples, number one for human rights defenders being killed, number one in terms of forced disappearances. Over 92,000 people have been disappeared in Colombia. Uh, Since what year? Probably in the last 20 years. Wow, that's actually maybe larger than Pinochet at his It's much highest. larger. It's much larger than Argentina, which was the country you think of during the Dirty War of having the disappearances. They had 30,000. Yeah. 
Colombia's had over 92,000, and that's according to the International Committee of the Red Cross. Wow. Wow. And so you look at all these figures, and it, you have to conclude if there's a humanitarian human rights crisis in the Americas, it's in Colombia. And yet that's the country we're working with to attack Venezuela. It, it, it's, yeah. it's it's just so anger provoking. I mean, it's insane. But, yeah, I mean, for me, this is what I always think. Like, America has to be against democracy because whenever people get real democracy, they're always going to vote to say, "Stop exploiting us, America," and that's when the dead squads come in. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, time and again, and I mean, look again. Look who we're working with against Venezuela, Colombia. That's this death squad nation and then you know brazil with this bolsonaro who himself has ties to brutal militias in brazil may have killed a councilwoman mariela exactly and he yes he, he's associated with the right. groups that, that were behind that you know you look at who we support and so you know there's no evidence the u.s supports democracy anywhere in fact the last statistic i saw was that the u.s funds 73% of the dictatorships in the world. Well, and look at Saudi Arabia. I mean, it might be even the best example, country that doesn't even purport to be democratic <laughs> yes. and that's carrying out a genocidal war against Yemen right now, which will literally kill millions of people. The UN has estimated at least 12 million people. That's two holocausts. And yet that receives almost no attention in the media. One thing I have a question about, I guess at least with Colombia, what does the U.S. government admit so far, I guess? What do they admit to? I mean, little. Mm -hmm. I mean, if press, they would admit that a lot of these human rights abuses happen. I've met with the ambassador, a series of ambassadors of the U.S. to Colombia over the years. They're, you know, but they'll always say, oh, but things are getting better. And again, they deny the paramilitaries. They'll openly deny to your face that the paramilitaries exist. I mean, but they'll say, yeah, there's problems. But, you know, the government's working to correct them. Of course, the truth is the government is behind the abuses. The other thing I should note is this false positive scandal. I don't know if you know about that that took place. No, I don't. Between 2002 and 2010 and it's being investigated by the International Criminal Court, turns out that the Colombian military, in order to justify their aid from the U.S., which was given in large part to fight the FARC insurgency there, they would kidnap civilians, mostly young men. They'd actually like put an ad in the paper for jobs. And the young guys would show up, and they'd be put taken in a bus. They'd be taken away and murdered. And then military would put FARC uniforms on them, put guns in their hand, take photos, and claim that they had killed guerrillas. Jesus Christ. Oh, that, like, that's to, like, inflate the numbers, right? To inflate the numbers. And it turns out the military has now admitted they did this. They don't deny it. Turns out they killed 10,000 people this way. Holy. 10,000 wow. civilians. Why are they admitting that? Well, they had to. They got, it, I mean, they, it, they couldn't deny it. They had a bounty of $1,500 a head that you would get. They were paying soldiers. Oh, my. And one question. Does it matter if there's a Democrat or a Republican in the White House for the Colombian death squad regime, I guess? 
No, absolutely not. I mean, in fact, the I'll tell you one irony or tragedy, however you want to look at it. So I worked for the Steelworkers Union for 25 years. That was my main job, believe it or not. I was a union <laughs> lawyer. And as a union lawyer, one of the things I did was get the union interested in Colombia because for the past, again, 20 or more years, Colombia has been and continues to be, again, the number one, another number one for them, the most dangerous country in the world to be a trade union leader hmm. with over 4,000 trade unionists killed there since 1986. And so we did a lot of advocacy around that issue. One thing in particular we focused on for years was trying to stop the Columbia Free Trade Agreement from passing. We were trying mm -hmm. to use that as leverage to stop the killings there in Colombia or get the Colombian government to stop. And you might recall the Columbia Free Trade Agreement was passed, well, it was signed by George W. Bush, but not passed by Congress. And why wasn't it? Because of the advocacy work of the U.S. unions that really opposed it on the basis of the killings. Well, and what that's fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic, and that's all good. But then what happened was, in Barack Obama in 2008 when he was campaigning, and you can find him interviewed on this subject, he said, I will oppose the Columbia Free Trade Agreement because they're killing unionists there. They just killed 50 this year, and that was in 2008. And so I'm going to oppose it. Well, once he became president in 2011, the Columbia Free Trade Agreement was had been dead for years by that point. Obama himself revived it, submitted it to Congress for passage, and it passed, and he signed it. And oh, at that my point, God. But wait, at that point, was the Cong who, who controlled Congress, Republicans uh, the, or Democrats? Well, that's the, well, the Republicans did control the House. That's how he was able to get it passed. But the irony was it was a Democratic president that waited till the Republicans were in the House to give it to them to approve. Wow. It's funny how the Republicans will be obstructionist on everything except for death squads. Well, of course. But what a betrayal by Obama. And the unions were so, to not use too colorful language, but they, they were so cowardly that they wouldn't even criticize Obama for doing it. They criticized the Republican House and Senate for passing it when they darn well knew it wouldn't have gotten to them had Obama not submitted it. It's, it's really incredible, an incredible story. Without meaning to for this to be too much of a digression, I wonder, like, do you think that cowardice was more out of fear or out of union leadership just being too close to politicians and other moneyed interests? I think it was being they did not want to offend Obama. They they that oh was my. what it came down to. And, and, you know, what's that about? Some of it's, you know, obviously about wanting things from him in return, but they never asked for anything. Like the party's been screwing unions for years, though. What, why would he be nicer to them because they hold their fire? <laughs> well, of course. Like, and, and again, they didn't even say, oh, if you give us this, we'll support that. They just let it happen. I mean, again, I think. You know, it is a matter of, of cowardice and also the union leaders' desire for access. I mean, you cannot underestimate how important it is to these people, like these union presidents, that they get invited to the White House a couple times a year. I mean, oh, they don't want to lose that, even if it means all they get is a cookie at Christmas time. I mean, I'm not even kidding. I mean, 
What was the reasoning behind Obama signing that? I mean, because he's a free trader and he's a neoliberal. I mean, it's something in his heart he always wanted to do. And he waited for the opportune time to do it. I mean, he, you know, it was his nature, in his nature to sign it. I mean, he also, you know, as you know, he signed the TPP, which ironically, it was Trump that killed I guess I was just wondering if did he give an official reason at all or he he just said look eventually this has to eventually we have to let Columbia off the hook we got to give him some incentive to do something right and so I'm going to sign it I mean that's what he said wow and I actually confronted his trade ambassador at the steelworker building he came to talk to the e board our executive board he just kind of tap danced you know it was quite shameful and you know I mean I'll just note I mean that the union movement has been pretty terrible in general on this stuff for years, you know, about the whole AFL-CIA and all that stuff. And that's not totally gone, you know. And again, I'm writing a book on Venezuela as we speak. The the AFL-CIO was very instrumental in the coup against Chavez in 2002. Yeah. Oh, okay. Can you explain that, actually? Because we've already done two episodes, but I didn't know about the AFL-CIO's involvement. Yeah, and again, you can find some New York Times stories on this. Well, they might have been more instrumental than anyone. So the coalition, the key coalition that brought about the coup was the coalition between the Venezuelan Chamber of Commerce, Fed Commerce is what it was called, and it was their guy that became the interim president. Pedro Camora, I believe his name was. Mm-hmm. But his group, Fed Commerce, and the CTV oil union, known as the CTV, it was their coalition that was key in bringing that coup together. Well, it was the AFL CIO's guy in Caracas who brought Fed Commerce and the union together to pull that off. And the AFL got hundreds of thousands of dollars in the year leading up to the coup to help finance the operations. Wait, who did they get the money from? The National Endowment for Democracy. The National Endowment for Democracy, as you probably know, in the 80s under Reagan, really took over the regime change operations from the CIA because the CIA, after the Frank Church, Senator Frank Church Commission in the 70s, had lost, you know, a lot of goodwill with the American people. So they created the National Endowment for Democracy to to be the really the regime change arm of the United States. And the interesting thing that few people know is the NED to this day has three main pillars that it operates through for regime change. The International Republican Institute, the International Democratic Institute, <laughs> and the AFL-CIO. I do not AFL know about still AFL-CIO. gets almost all its money from the NED. Wow. My gosh. What other countries is the AFL-CIO involved in? Everywhere. I mean, they're everywhere because they get millions of dollars from the NED to be everywhere. And, you know, although there was this guy, he did a very interesting thesis, like a grad thesis out of Florida International University a couple of years back, showing that the AFL was most involved in countries that were marked for regime change. That's where they were most active. Wow. And the same guy, guy named Rhett Dumit, who I know well because he also operates in Colombia. I know him very well because of all my work in Colombia. He was the guy in charge of the AFL's operations in Caracas 
at the time. And he was personally very anti-Chavez too. Like he, he was very ideologically committed against Chavez. It's funny, about, about three weeks ago on our show, we had Jeanette Charles, and she was telling us how good Chavez was for the working class. So it's kind of an irony there. Well, it is, you know, but and that was true. But, you know, the AFL helped with the coup in Chile against Allende. They helped with the coup against Wait. our beds in Guatemala. I mean, this is Do what they've done for years and years and years. How, how did they help against Chile and Allende? N- they not, paid, got me they paid truckers there to strike as a means oh. of destabilizing the economy. That was a key event that happened before the the coup on September 11th. Wow. And in Guatemala against Arbenz, what did they do? I don't know all the details of that. That's a little more murky to me, but but it's okay. known that they were involved. In fact, my own steelworker president, George Becker, who was my boss at the time, told me he had, was personally involved in that coup in 54. Wow. But there's all sorts of stuff. That's why I mentioned the AFL-CIA. Wow. They used to disparagingly call the AFL-CIO the AFL-CIA because of all this stuff. People knew (laughs) that this was happening. You could Google AFL-CIA and you'll find all sorts of stuff. They were very instrumental in propping up the dictatorship in South Korea in the 80s, did similar things in the Philippines. Were they just doing this for the paycheck? Or was this partly driven by some hope that... If we collaborate with the United States government, they'll leave U.S. labor alone or something. Yeah, I think it had nothing to do with the paycheck per se, though. I mean, obviously, the people who get the paycheck are motivated by that. I mean, you know, these are pretty (laughs) nice, nice jobs for people. But I think there were two things that were happening. One, they were ideologically anti communist you know, and so they bought the whole anti-communist vilification, and so they were dedicated to that. But I think there was, and I don't know if this was explicit, but I do think they believed, or there was some kind of tacit deal after World War II that, look, if labor fights this anti-communist fight, domestically, of course, which they did, you know, they purged the unions of the communists Mm -hmm. in 48, but also if they would fight this fight internationally, then... Yeah, the government and the capitalist ruling class would live with the unions. And, you know, people get good wages and a good standard of living, which did happen for about two decades, the 50s and the 60s. The deal kind of was unilaterally dropped in the 70s, but the AFL never really picked up on that for about another 20 years. But I do think that that was what partially what was happening Oh, by the way, they were involved in the coup in Brazil as well in 1964. And I detail that in my book. If I can make a plug for my book that's out. Of course you can. We actually talked about your book in the intro before you came on, but go for it. Well, the plot to control the world. And I have a chapter on Brazil and I quote Phil Agee, who was a CIA agent. I actually knew him. He, He was a good guy. He was a CIA agent. He turned against the CIA, became very disheartened and disillusioned. And he wrote a lot about CIA operations around the world, including in Brazil. And he details how the AFL was crucial in that coup too in 64. So it's a fascinating history. And again, it's not finished yet, even though the AFL claimed in 95 that they, 1995, they were going to stop that stuff. Then again, it turned out they were part of the 2002 coup. And the same guy, Rhett Dumit, who ran the operations in 2002, is still in charge of Venezuela. 
And there are elements of the CTV that were like appearing with Guaido, that CTV oil union. So I have no doubt that the AFL is still doing something there. Wow. Um, I just learned that they even rallied in support of Israel. Wow. Is there any bad actor they're not defending right now? <laughs> yeah, no. I yeah, mean, you have to search. AFL-CIA, and you'll get all these articles. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. And it used to be a fairly well-known part of the history, but it's not something most people know about anymore. But it is quite fascinating. Oh, okay. One more thing is uh, that I'd like to bring forward is AFL-CIO refuses a clean air policy. Um, so Yes, Yeah, I know all about that. Yeah, so I think this was right after the coup in 2002 when, again, the New York Times was printing this stuff about the AFL's role in it. There were progressives in the labor movement who started this clean air campaign saying, hey, you guys got to tell us what you're up to and what you've done over the years. You, get, you know, like, this, like even the CIA or State Department do on occasion, you have to declassify everything. We want to see what you guys have been doing. Because we know you've been up to no good. Well, the AFL refused this. They wouldn't do it. And I know of conversations that were had, you know, where basically they decided they couldn't release it because it was too damning for them, including with the people they were working with now. You know, like those people would find out what they did against them. <laughs> you know? I mean, really, really terrible stuff. Okay, I'm reading an excerpt from Rogue State, A World's Guide to Only Superpower. And this is what he said. Like, this is like an AFL-CIO affiliate. Successfully manipulated elections in Nicaragua in 1990, Mongolia in 1996, Bulgaria in 1990, Albania in 1991 and 92, and Haiti. Yeah, there's a huge list. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's a guy named Kim Skites, S-C-I-P-E-S, who's written about this, too. If you Google him, you'll find a lot of his stuff he's written. But uh, wow. anyway. Um, so, uh, well, I know we were supposed to originally talk about the death squads, but this just blew my mind. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. But it's all relevant. It's They've been in their necks up to this stuff, you know? So if, like, we wanted to start, like, how does American labor start from a clean slate, I guess, or like what should American labor do in order to show solidarity? Well, I think for one, I do think they need to say, okay, I mean, in this, you know, I was raised Catholic. So the idea to be forgiven, you know, you first of all have to say you're sorry, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. have to ask for forgiveness. And, and part of that is saying what you did and saying you're sorry for it. So one is they do have to clean the air. They have to say, they have to release their records from the last 50 years or whatever it's been. And they need to come clean and say, okay, this is what we did. And then they have to say, okay, we're not going to do that again. And I think they're going to have to, I think the key thing is they have to stop taking money from the NED. I think they get something like over 90% of all their inter funds for their international work from the NED. Wow. I, I mean, literally NED funds the whole thing. Can they even be salvaged at this point? I mean, should we just start from the ground up and build a, a whole new structure? It sounds like it's totally been captured by empire and, you know, the capitalist class. I think there's an argument that could be made that that's true. And again, certainly it has to be done if they're not willing to fess up to what they've done. I mean, because then they're not really sorry. Again, it's it's very elemental. Any, yeah. 
any any code of morality would dictate some first steps. And again, that they would have to eschew all U.S. government money. You, if you accept money from the NED, whose main job is to engage in regime change, there's no way you can be independent of that process. It's impossible. You know, so I actually think maybe the best and easy thing is for the AFL to give up the Solidarity Center. That's what their international wing is called. They should just shut it down entirely. You said that ideologically during the Cold War, the unions were anti-communist. Did that precede their deal with the devil, so to speak? Or did that or was it the result or did they both kind of happen concurrently and sort of independently? I would say it kind of happened concurrently again. You know, the real kind of inflection point was in, I think it was 48, where Truman demanded that they sign an anti-communist pledge. And they could have said, F*** you. I mean, that, you know, but they didn't. They yeah, why not? It. <laughs> well, again, I, you know, I'm probably partly out of fear, but partly out of, again, some of their own ideological commitments. But once they did that and they purged the unions of all communist socialists and all, then, of course, that dictated the nature of the union movement for decades to come. I mean, you get rid of all those people, then where is the leadership going to come from? It's only going to come from certainly non-communist ranks, but many anti-communist ranks. You know, they dictated by agreeing to that and carrying out the purge of the radicals, they changed the nature of what they were, you know, because in the 30s, the communists were very important in the union movement, helped build it, helped do the organizing. And then they got rid of all those people. So they became something different. And, you know, and frankly, they, they didn't really back off that until the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, when there weren't many communists left to even worry about. So, you know, again, what they are today, it has to be seen by that decision they made years ago. It seems like unions kind of like let American companies roll over American workers, like the union movement in America, like with all these right to work. Yeah. So it's, it seems like it's interconnected. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things to explain, you know, but yeah, they first of all, yeah, they got rid of the most militant people. So again, they're going to be less militant by definition, right? But also what happened was by the time they decided, oh, we need to fight back. It was too late. They were too small. They were too beaten back. And now I think they do try to resist right to work. I think they try to resist those things, but they don't have the power they had, you know, when they could have really changed this country and changed this world. They decided not to. They decided basically to play ball, feather their own nests. And because of that, they became weakened, too. I mean, they planted the seeds of their own destruction is what happened. You know, I'll tell you wow. an interesting thing, a little interesting thing too. Now, as we talk about Medicare for all, you realize Richard Nixon was willing to sign into law a single payer plan. And you know who stopped it? The AFL-CIO. And do you know why? Because one of their big selling points for organizing was that they can get people employer-based health care. Uh. Ah, if we had national health care, if everyone had it, why would you join a union? So the AFL, through their legislative lobbying, killed it. And, wow. and because they weren't really an adversarial force 
to the bosses and the capitalist class anymore. All they could offer their members were crumbs. And yeah, and because like they depend. Healthcare. Yeah, and they needed to organize to get dues to pay for their staff and their buildings. And one way to do that was to convince people you could only have health care through the employer and through a union contract with an employer. Right. The focus going from taking power for workers to negotiating a better contract for employment is just such a depressing, I don't know, shrinking of horizons or just oh, what a... <laughs> Yeah, well, and it's, it's almost unique in the world. I mean, in other countries, unions are social movement organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, they protest against everything. I know these little unions, this little Coca-Cola union in Colombia, they protested against the Iraq war in Colombia. You know, I mean, most unions around the world have very universal concerns, but the U.S. labor movement, like many institutions and people in the U.S., think somehow the U.S. is special and we're special. And so they have taken a, a rather parochial view of what unions do. Yeah, it's been a disaster. I suppose we thought we didn't need something like international solidarity when we benefit from living in the imperial core. Except well, I, of course- think that is, I think that's what their view was was that the empire would take care of them. And so really mm. they saw themselves, their main objective internationally, as protecting the empire against those who would oppose it. Um, wow. As if we wouldn't ultimately get fed into the same machine. <laughs> right. And of course, Just a yeah, little bit what later. happened is, that in a way, they got their way. The Soviet Union collapsed. The East Bloc collapsed. The socialist movement worldwide you know, was weakened greatly. And then guess what happened? The capitalists came for them, you know? and, and Kind of like that poem. Destroyed, yeah. <laughs> destroyed, destroyed our standard of living. Destroyed the unions here. You know, uh, they, you know, we were like, hey, we're on your side. And then the capitalists looked at them and said, yeah, but we're not on your side. It's really, it's an incredible thing. And that history hasn't been fully written yet, but it certainly deserves to be. I know enough about U.S. history not to get shocked by anything, but the AFL-CIO really took me for the loop to see like how unions have been collaborating with the CIA. Yeah. Well, if I've shocked you, I've done my job for the day, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's good. It's very informative. I guess, is there any other movements that you want to talk about? <laughs> You know, I guess briefly, I just I'll talk about Venezuela because I think, okay. you know, Go it's ahead. probably one of the most pressing things happening right now. So, you know, I think clearly for those who don't realize it, that this regime change operation in Venezuela, and that it's pretty much admitted that that's what it is. No one's really doubting that. But th- that the purpose behind it is about two main things, maybe three. The first being oil. Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. And, you know, Chavez nationalized Venezuela's oil. And essentially the companies, U.S. companies want that oil back. And again, this is not a secret. John Bolton, the national security advisor, has been very open about the fact that they're already in discussions about how the American companies are going to get involved with Venezuelan oil once this regime change happens. He's been very open about that. 
Juan Guaido has been very open that if he becomes president, he's going to open up the oil industry to foreign investors again. So this is very clear. It has nothing to do with humanitarianism. People have to realize that whatever mistakes the Venezuelan government has made, that what's really hurting their economy, why they are in the state they're in, is because of 20 years of U.S. aggression against that country. There's an interesting guy, Alfred Desaius, who was a U.N. expert who went to Venezuela, spent time there to investigate what was happening there with the economy and with the crisis there. And he himself made that conclusion, that that was what was killing them with the sanctions the U.S. imposed, sabotage against the country. You don't sabotage a country and destroy its economy and then say you care about their humanitarian situation. It obviously doesn't make any sense. Mm -mm. So it's primarily a war as many of ours about oil and not access to oil. Cause as you know, the U S is now a net exporter of fossil fuels because of the whole fracking boom. We have more oil than we need, but it's about control. It's about profits. It's about geopolitical right. control. The second thing that's happening is as always, the U S wants to show the world that, if you go your independent path, you try to build some sort of form of socialism or social democracy, the U.S. will destroy you. They need to set an example, and they're using Venezuela as an example, that you don't, you don't go outside the dictates of capitalism or you will be crushed. And, and so that's a message they want to send to the world. That's something they've repeated over and over again with Vietnam, with Chile. Iran in the 50s, you, you know, on and on, you look at that. And I think the third thing, which relates to the second thing, and can't be underestimated, is that it's being done for domestic consumption. It's not a coincidence that the hard push for regime change in Venezuela began concurrently with the rise of these socialists in the Democratic Party of the United States people calling for Green New Deals and Medicare for All. Again, the U.S. wants to send a message domestically that if you try those things, like Venezuela has tried those things, you will fail and it will be a disaster. And how do we know that? Look at Venezuela. Of course, the U.S. has largely created the disaster there, but then they've blamed it on socialism. That, And again, the U.S. has done that time and time again. So I think people need to see through what's happening there and to see why uh, this regime change is being carried out. And again, I think to me, the best proof of the lack of humanitarian concern is in the country next door, Colombia, where you have a true humanitarian crisis that I've already described uh, right across the border. I'll give one little more example there. Right across the border in Colombia, is the largest indigenous tribe, the Wayu tribe. Mm -hmm. And they live in Colombia and Venezuela. They actually live in a territory straddling both countries. Well, the Wayu in Colombia are dying. At least 5,000 children have died in recent years due to starvation. And I visited there in 2017. And you can see why. So their entire territory looks like a desert. 
And the reason that is, is because they had this huge river that fed their land. And a mining company called Sarahone dammed that river. And so wow. now you can stand in that river. I literally stood in that river because there's no water in it. None. It's dry as a bow. So these people are being starved and thirsted. I don't know if that's a word. Uh, to death, literally. And no one disputes this. this you can read about the why of Colombia and how they're dying. No one cares. There was not a, a benefit concert for the YU people, right? Richard Branson, while yeah. he was there, he could have done one, right? It's not about helping people like that, right? Uh, um, one quick question. I knew they were like always looking for regime change, but I didn't expect the Trump regime to pull the trigger in such a sudden manner. Like, can you give us some predictions or insights on why they decided to pull the trigger like this year? Well, again, I think there are some ideological reasons, you know, that they're doing it, again, to destroy anyone's dream of socialism, including in the U.S. But I also, you know, what I've been reading is that really as soon as Trump was elected, while he didn't have strong feelings about Venezuela one way or another, people around him did. That Mike Pompeo, for example, who was head of the CIA at that time and is now Secretary of State, had really been working on him to do this. And then, of course, he hired John Bolton, National Security Advisor. He's been working hard to get Trump on board. So he surrounded himself with people who really want this regime change desperately. And of course, Pompeo, as you know, hired Elliot Abrams to run the Venezuela policy. Venez Elliot Abrams was key to uh, Reagan's death squad war in Central America to helping cover up the El Mazote massacre in El Salvador, which killed a thousand people. He was instrumental in the Iran-Contra scandal. This guy is the perfect guy for this job. So, I mean, you have people in place who desperately want this. And I think also, though, they see an opportunity. I mean, the sanctions that the U.S. has imposed, particularly the ones Trump imposed in August of 2017, have really just crippled that country. And I think they see an opportunity now. I mean, they, they smell blood in the water. The U.S. has won regime change for 20 years, and now they think they can get it. So now... And Chavez really, is gone. And Chavez is gone. And again, it's not a coincidence that, that the real economic war began right after he died. Yeah. First with the agreement between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to lower oil prices by flooding the market with oil. That was a huge. Oh. And that you can read about that. Oh, okay. Independent of London. That was, I didn't realize that hurting Venezuela was part of the reason for that. Okay. Yeah, and it's hurt them worse than any country on earth because they get 60% of their revenue from oil. I mean, it crushed them immediately. And then Obama began sanctions in 2015. And so the real push came after Chavez died. So, yeah, you had Chavez die, then they imposed these sanctions. I mean, so they've been whittling away at this country for years, and they see an opportunity. So I think that's what it's, what's happening. One question. It seems like this attempt at the coup with like declaring Guaido as president is failing. Do you agree with that? I think it is failing. When Guaido announced himself as president, 80% of Venezuelans polled said they never heard of him before. You know, <laughs> this 
It is fake. Right, yeah. he, has, <laughs> he has virtually no support there. Well, he's just some um, chump who was in the in one of the Guerrero's, right? Yeah, I mean, he's a nobody, and he was handpicked by the United States. And people see that. And, and even a lot of people who oppose Maduro are like, I don't want a Washington puppet to be president. So it is failing. But the problem is, I don't think the U.S. is just going to stop here. I mean, they may drop White O tomorrow, but they'll find some other means. You know, Bolsonaro just was in Washington this week. And the first place he oh, went yeah. to was Langley, Virginia, to the CIA, which is very strange for Actually, we had an episode about the judicial coup earlier in our podcast. So, yeah, Bolsonaro's kind of a U.S.-made monster. Yeah, and he's obviously dedicated to the regime change in Venezuela. So, I mean, I think these guys are very serious. Yeah, I, I guess I've sort of assumed that they're probably going to keep trying, but I guess I'm not really sure where they go from here and without some kind of way to really crack the Venezuelan army. I mean, because Guaido told, I mean, Pence is really mad at Guaido right now, I think, because Guaido said he could get like 300,000 defectors <laughs> from the army. 30. And, you know, like nobody is. <laughs> yeah, he, he got like literally 30. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, and, and you know, and then Guaido left the country and... Why, why did they let them back in? Good question. Yeah, I mean, the question really does come down to whether they're willing to use a military intervention. I mean, that's what it comes down to. That is what it would take, probably. And I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that they would go that route. Wow. I could see some sort of operation like the Panamanian invasion in 89. It's flabbergasting how low they're willing to go. Yeah, well, and it's it's hard to know, but you have the sense they won't stop. I mean, would they be willing to, I guess, to commit... U.S. military troops in a like in in serious number because I mean Bolsonaro is kind of a dumbass, but I don't think he's stupid enough to want to take on the Venezuelan military. Yeah, well, he kind of said he wouldn't. I mean, at this point, he won't commit. Yeah, to use Brazil as a staging ground. I mean, I don't know again or or whether they would opt for some sort of shock and awe like they did in Iraq. I mean some sort of aerial campaign or like in Yugoslavia. I mean, you know, that would not require boots on the ground, but could be quite devastating. And do what? Just sort of pummel them until, until they give up cracks. Yeah. Okay. basically. Oh, now God. again, that the, the optics of that would be just Awful. unbelievable, but yeah. these guys are nuts. I'm sorry. They're, they're nuts. Bolton's nuts. And, and Elliot Abrams is nuts. That's true. Yeah. They're total psychos. Actually, Pompeo today said that God sent Trump to save the Jews. Well, I mean, there's this kind of apocalyptic thing going on. You know, there's a huge swath of the American public that actually wants the apocalypse, you know, and they believe. Yeah, I grew up in the Bible Belt. <laughs> yeah, and they believe but, certain things have to, have to happen for that to happen, including Jerusalem becoming part of Israel again, all that stuff, which, of course, Trump made happen. But then Jesus might not come back. We might just cause human extinction. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it's hilarious thing. These... that it comes from the guy who autographs Bibles. <laughs> right. <laughs> and talks about how much he loves two Corinthians. <laughs> I mean, if you have people in power who aren't only willing to risk the apocalypse, but actually welcome it, they're capable of anything. 
I mean, those are very scary people. Yeah. Yeah. We need to get them out as quickly as possible. But one question um, Brandon had is, why didn't Chavez kind of move against the right wing, like crack down against the right wing harder? Well, he didn't crack down against them at all. Like, why didn't he? Yeah, why not remove them? Why not take their land by force and, uh, you know, like go full Castro on them? They're, they're obviously the problem, like that he just believed in the project of social democracy or that he thought that we would, I don't know, invade or something or what was the calculation there? Well, those are great questions. I know a lot of Venezuelans have that question. I think there's a certain consensus amongst leftists that after the 2002 coup, he should have consolidated power, you know. Yeah. And instead, as you know, he ended up granting a general amnesty. It's incredible. People who kidnapped him went free, you know. Um, and you can't show these people any. You can't give them an inch. They want to cut your throat. And I think, look, it was probably a mistake. Why did he do it? I think, yes, I do think that, I mean, I think there was a mixture. I think that, you know, he was a very devout Catholic. I think he had this notion of trying to act mercifully towards his enemies. I think he believed that he could find common ground with people. I think he explicitly did not want to go the Cuban model or the Soviet model or Chinese model. He wanted to build socialism in a more gradual, democratic way, which honestly for a country like Venezuela is probably impossible, but he wanted to try. Um, uh, yeah, I don't as long as as long as the United States I- exists it, as a, you know, like the at the head of a capitalist empire, I, I don't think it's possible <laughs> for, right. well, for anybody who's, true. yeah. He might've been a little naive in that way, but the, whatever reason he didn't do it. And I do think probably it's fair to say we're seeing the results of that now that he didn't do it. Cause now you couldn't really do it. I mean, you know, Maduro doesn't have the consensus, the mandate that Chavez had after the 2002 coup, and that was the time to do it, really. So I um, often think about what uh, about Castro's warning to Allende. Yeah, he said to arm the workers, and though they have done that, I mean, in Venezuela, yeah. again, if there's a military attack, they would meet a very fierce defense in the Venezuelan people who are largely armed and ready to go. Um, and their military is basically trained to fight a guerrilla war, right? That's because they know what kind of threat they would be facing, a massive conventional force. Yeah, I mean, look, they would be formidable in a conventional war. The question is whether the U.S. will opt for I don't know if we know another way to fight wars. I mean, you look at kind of we have all this power and, you know, just unlimited money, really, like and, and a huge military and all these weapons. And you look at what we've been doing in Afghanistan and Iraq and our performance is not particularly impressive. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's true. It's true that we think we could win another war when we haven't won one in years. But I would just leave you with the question, though, whether or not the very chaos that the U.S. has sown in places like the Middle East has not been the goal to begin with. You know, that, that they're, they may feel comfortable with that sort of situation. That's a good question. I, I wonder that myself. I do think that that ultimately kind of benefits capitalism because of the shock doctrine. But I've wondered, and I still wonder, 
if policymakers are thinking that way or because there does seem to be a lot of genuine arrogant stupidity. I mean, like they're they're obviously incredibly cynical, a lot of them. But yeah, I don't know. Or maybe it's a well, you know, worst case scenario, we get chaos and markets and defense um, money and, and tons and tons of defense money. You know, yeah, we're fighting and the speaking war. Speaking of defense money, to what extent uh, do we directly fund the the right wing paramilitaries in Colombia? So I don't think it's so much that we send arms directly to them. Though I think the CIA has at times done that, and the DEA. In fact, if you watch the show Narcos, they touch upon that a little. If you know your history, you see that they worked the Cali cartel to go after the Medellin cartel. And the Carly cartel was led in part by the Castaniel brothers who become the leaders of the paramilitary. So that's an interesting link. But most of it's done indirectly. The paramilitaries are really an arm of the military. They get their weapons from the military. They get their uniforms from the military. A lot of members of the paramilitaries at night are military people during the day. So you have this close relationships. So the point is every everything you give to the military is potentially ending up in the hands of the paramilitaries and they know that. They know. Uh, trickle down. Why have two separate forces? Just plausible deniability? That is exactly what it's about. So the paramilitary can do lots of gross things like beheading people that the military oh, can right. because of That's exactly that that's exactly right. That is why. And now they even deny the paramilitaries even exist. So they just say they're criminal gangs huh. who are carrying out these <laughs> atrocities. Literally, that's what they're called, the Bakri, which is, uh, yeah. you know, these criminal gangs. That's what they call them, criminal bandits. And so terrible things happen, but ah, it's criminality. Too bad. And it works. Again, it works. You don't hear about death squads <laughs> on, the day, on the nightly news. When was the last time you heard of a Colombian death squad on the news? Never. Basically, I only heard it on Telesur when I watched you. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and they called me because they hadn't even heard about it. I mean, literally, it's not discussed. It's incredible. Thank you so much. And this was one of like the most informative episodes we've ever had. So thank you for coming on. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me on. I'd love to come back. Absolutely. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.